Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And today on the show, we have the epitome of a dedicated amateur runner. We have Becky Snelson. You might know the name Becky Snelson now, but you probably didn't about a month ago. So recently, Becky finished 14th in the women's division of the Boston Marathon. And after that amazing finish for her, which was actually personal best, she ran a 2.49 uh, at 2018 Boston, which is just simply remarkable. But she was in the national limelight a little bit because as a top 15 finisher from uh, from from a purely time perspective, that would... At first glance, you would think at least, put her in the prize money. So basically what it is, the top 15 women finishers earn prize money. However, but because she wasn't in the elite women starting field, she wasn't actually the 15th woman across the line necessarily. So this was quite a controversy that, that got uh, got put to the national forefront after a BuzzFeed article that Becky was in. And after you hear uh, this interview, I think you'll see exactly how Becky approached that. And we, we touch on that really in the kind of the back half of this podcast. But she is a remarkable runner, no matter the circumstances. And I think she takes a very even-handed approach to that kind of faux controversy, uh, so to speak. She actually was given prize money after the fact by the PAA. Uh, and as she put it, this is like a once in a 1,000 uh, circumstance considering all the dropouts, all the people who didn't finish, and just the weather and all those circumstances. So we dive into that, but we also talk about Becky's history. She is an engineering and music major at Bucknell. She ran in college, which normally isn't how we go with this podcast. We usually don't talk to post-college runners, uh, but she is quite different because she manages a ton of things in a day-to-day perspective. She did in college. She was a double major and a Division One athlete. Uh, and even now, she is a full-time engineer. She is a, a sub-elite and now elite marathon runner uh, in the United States uh, at a very young age and also is going to grad school. So she is tackling a lot of the same issues that most dedicated amateur runners do. And I don't know if I can call her an amateur anymore. She just won some prize money. So maybe I shouldn't call her that, but she is, she is remarkable. Uh, she actually has the same coach that I've had for a little over a year now. Uh, Caitlin Gray Goodman, who's been on the podcast too, who's helped her. So I hope you like this episode with Becky Snelson. Hello, Becky, and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on anything (laughs) (laughs) well i'll tell you what you've had um quite an adventurous few weeks here uh as i mentioned in the introduction um you had one heck of a boston marathon i think you're like one of the few people who were like hey i'm gonna run faster than ever at the boston marathon this is gonna be great and um you really had an exceptional race and um you know it uh it really was a remarkable thing and not only that but with all of the kind of hubbub that happened after the race um which obviously um you know was a kind of a, a thing a thing in and of itself in terms of the controversy and the resolution and i can't wait to get to, you know we can talk about that and your reflections on that but i guess first things first when you were towing the start line for that race what was going through your head honestly I kind of just come to terms with the weather. I was just like, 
it was the day before we were, my mom and I were up, we were walking around the expo and everyone was telling us like, Oh my God, you need to have all the right clothes. You have to do all of this. And I'm just like, you know what? The weather isn't going to change whether or not I get on this line and give this race everything I have. So I just kind of need to like accept that this is what's going to happen. I've raced in like super unfortunate conditions before. I mean, college cross country, you're going to get anything. Um, but then also like I live in New England. This winter has been brutal. So I was just like, you know what? Yeah, it's going to be 40 degrees, like real feel of 30 and workouts in like 12. So <laughs> fundamentally, like. It was almost balmy. I just kept telling myself, like, it's balmy. It's balmy. You're fine. <laughs> there you go. See, I know you just have to you have to ignore, I guess, ignore the rain and focus on the fact it really wasn't that cold. Um, so you live about an hour away from where I live. I live in central Rhode Island. And mm-hmm. you're right. This winter has been just extraordinary in terms of the freezing conditions. So do you feel like that that helped you in retrospect? I think definitely. I think you'll find a lot of people, a lot of people who are in New England, a lot of people who kind of just like, not that there's like stuff wrong with being able to go get like perfect training conditions, people who really had to make it work with around work schedules and stuff like that. They were like, you know what, this is a day. This is for me. Like, I I don't have another day to like put this away for 10 days and try to find another one across the, like, across the country. Like, I've got to do this today and I've taken off work for this. So fundamentally like I need to do this and it was one of those things where sort of mind over matter I mean everyone jokes about the fact that running is all mental and so eventually you just have to put it into practice and when you have one of those crazy days where it's you know 10 degrees and you have a crazy work schedule and you have a 10 to 13 mile run and, and some in some nutty weather are you able to kind of put that in perspective at that moment say like hey this is going to make me stronger or is it more of like oh god let's just get this done and over with I think it depends on really how cra- crappy my work day has been. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, fundamentally, it's running is the one thing I do for myself every single day. So I try to frame all of my runs, no matter how crazy it is, um, just like as this is my play day with myself, like I can go out there and um, fundamentally, I also couldn't have done this by myself. I had another couple friends who were running Boston with me. So a lot of times we would try to meet up for some of those crazy cold long runs and also, like, my boyfriend would bike with me, um, so it would be, like, 8 o'clock, and we'd be running through the pitch black streets, and it'd be the two of us, him on the bike, and me running, and he's like, you know how crazy we look? Like, this isn't cute couple stuff. Like, this is insane. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, so you, uh, we should, I should frame this. I did mention this in, in the introduction, but you have a full-time job. I do, yes. You are in grad school. That's, yeah. <laughs> right? And... Uh-huh. You are a sub elite marathoner. So you obviously so basically running is on some level a full time job as well, because you're putting in um, big miles. And I'm assuming given the constraints to your schedule, you really can't do double sessions. You pretty much have to do one run a day and get the most out of it. I'm assuming. A lot of times we do have one run a day. Every once in a while, I'm able to put in a, a double but um, my work schedule is really crazy. Like I work at a place where that they have shifts. So since as an engineer, I don't technically have shifts, but a lot of times you're kind of on the same schedule. So my doubles will be at like five o'clock in the morning. And then by the time I get out of work, it'll be my second run of the day will be at like four or five o'clock. So it's, um, it's kind of nuts, but at the same time, it's kind of a nice way to start my day. So I do kind of like to do it. Um, but it's another thing, like if I wasn't working this crazy job that I absolutely love, but if I wasn't working these crazy hours, Honestly, maybe I'd be able to get more miles, but it's one of those things where I just have to kind of sit down and be like, stress is stress. I'm getting a lot of stress at work, so that's still stressing my body, and it's one of those things that I've kind of come into terms with, and working with Caitlin and everything, we've kind of been able to 
optimize the time I am able to give it and make it count. Right. So your coach is Caitlin Greg Goodman, who's uh, one of the best marathoners in the country, uh, who I actually had as my coach uh, recently as well over the past year. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I'm assuming um, she's more excited to see your weekly running reports than my weekly running reports, <laughs> which, are, which are not nearly as exciting, uh, usually are, uh, are kind of a downer in retrospect. But um, so she, she is it for you? Did you kind of search her out as somebody who has kind of reached a level that you hope to reach? Or what was the rationale for you in choosing a coach? So I was looking for a coach, um, and I kind of just looking around. I tried to coach myself a little bit um, the first year after I graduated from college. Um, I did get pretty decent marathon results, kind of just modifying the training I had done in college. But starting about um, probably about a year and a half ago, um, I was just like, you know what, I'm in over my head. If I really want to see what's going on with this and see how good I can be, I need somebody who's like confident with this, like with this training and kind of has a little better grasp on what I should actually be doing is more comfortable with this race. And I was looking around and I saw her. And one of the things that did really uh, draw me to her was the fact that she's not just like marathon centric. Uh, she does a lot of stuff on the track. She qualified for both like track races and the marathon Olympic trials in the 2016 cycle. And I was like, Oh my God, that's awesome. Because I still want to be able to run all these things. And I can't commit to like a 16 week cycle where I only run like one race and maybe a half marathon eight weeks into it and just try to figure it out. So that's just not how my life works. Um, And then like, as I, like she has the pre phone call, she's talking about it. She's like, Oh yeah, well I'm in grad school and I'm also trying to do this. And I'm just like, Oh my God, like this is, this is perfect. This is actually, I, I, this, she's got, I was kind of worried looking at coaches that they would kind of expect me to be like all in. And she was just like, no, like we're going to work around your schedule, see what's going on and go for there. And honestly, I couldn't be happier. She's been phenomenal. (laughs) Yeah. I know you guys are different ages. You know, she's a few years older than you, but you, your lives mirror each other, I think (laughs) on on certain levels. Um, Mm -hmm. That's for sure. So I can see that. I can see how that would kind of, you know, kind of be a good fit for someone who's looking looking to have kind of a, a multi-layered life, I guess, if for no other way to mm-hmm. put it. Um, that was kind of a clunky phrase, but I think hopefully I get, the, I get the point across. Um, so kind of going back in time a little bit here, you went to Bucknell, yes. right? You did cross country and track, and you also were an engineering major. So what, going back to the recruiting process, why did you choose Bucknell and what was your recruitment like as a runner? So I was actually a double major in college. Um, I have a double degree in engineering and music. Um, so uh, when I was looking at colleges, I first started the process and I wanted to be an architect. Like anything, I, that's just what I wanted to be. <laughs> um, so I was looking at schools and a lot of times it was going to be hard for me to be able to get, um, be able to run and um, and get music and everything like that while also being an architecture degree because those degrees are super demanding um the joke on every campus i visited was oh it's like the architecture building's a lighthouse the lights are always on there's always people in there um so kind of as it morphed and kind of as i got a little bit further um in my high school we had a bunch of electives about architecture i kind of realized that that wasn't really where i wanted to end up and i was kind of having second thoughts about it and i went into college thinking okay well i'll get just an engineering degree <laughs> um and if i really am still thinking architecture i'll go to grad school and get uh, my graduate degree in architecture um so and then i was looking around starting to change from more of an architecture standpoint to engineering and then one of the last schools i looked at was actually bucknell and my mom and i were coming back from um actually a summer camp i attended at frank lloyd wright's falling water 
And we just stopped by Bucknell. It was like the middle of the summer. Nobody was on campus. And I, we didn't even take a tour. We just walked around and just saw the quad and everything. And I just fell in love. It was like, I tell people it was like finding the right wedding dress. I have no experience with that, but I tell people it was like, finding, <laughs> it, was, it was like, this is what everybody tells me. It's like, you found the right wedding dress. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. I just walked on campus and I was like, oh my God, this is everything I wanted. It was kind of like in the middle of nowhere, but at the same time, it was just such a cohesive everything. And it just kind of felt right. Um, so then I got, we got back home and I emailed the coach and I was like, Hey, here's my times. Here's my SAT scores, all that kind of stuff. And he was like, okay, cool. Like, we'll like to have you on for an recruiting visit. And, um, the more I looked into it, I saw that the school would be a good fit. And then, um, I got recruited. They offered me a spot probably more because of my academics than my athletics. Um, <laughs> because I was a little bit stronger on the academic standpoint than the athletic standpoints compared to what they would like to recruit. Um, and then, uh, so I got in and then I was realizing that I was a music minor really wasn't going to cut it for me. I was getting ready for my senior recitals and high school and everything like that. And I'm just like, Oh my God, I've been playing the violin since I was four. How on earth am I supposed to just not have this be part of my life? Like it's fundamentally like my violin's like an extension of my body a little bit. And, um, I had two weeks before the last audition date, I emailed and saw, thought, I asked if I could get an audition and I, and they were like, yeah, sure. Come on in. Like, this like 7 30 on this date or whatever and so then I emailed my violin teacher at the time and I was like hey Mrs. Mum so I just did a crazy thing and got myself an audition at Bucknell uh to get an actual music degree so um I'm gonna need to get ready for this audition in two weeks <laughs> she was just like oh okay well here this is what we can all pull together and it was one of those things it was like everything that I wanted to do and kind of further myself in my career and that kind of stuff I was able to find at the school and fundamentally it was just probably one of the best spots for me to grow from kind of the timid high school person to somebody who was ready to be in the real world and kind of fend for myself and everything so I thought honestly it was just kind of a wonderful experience <laughs> see I am blown away so I I played division three basketball mm -hmm. and that is you know a far cry from 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 division one athletics from a time from a time commitment standpoint especially in the off season uh and for someone who does cross country and track there is no off season it's, it literally is a four month i'm sorry four season sport uh mm -hmm. even including the summer so what was it like balancing a, a double major both majors being very time intensive with athletics as well because i guess i have this this one line i got from my college basketball coach which which i thought was classic he says if you're a college athlete there's three parts of your life there's your academic life there's your athletic life and then there's a show there's your social life and you can choose and you can choose two out of the three so for you you had you had four different parts of your life because you had two different athletic lives so how do you balance that um honestly i didn't sleep a lot um, I think if you actually like took a blood test of me at any time in college, it, my blood would probably have read like 90% coffee. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess what you're saying is like, yeah, you had to pick two either like of those things, academics and athletics and their social life. And fundamentally, my social life was woven into there. So I didn't feel like I was missing that too much. Um, and it was able to sort of just my friends were the people I was up all night doing engineering homework with or running for three hours at practice and that kind of stuff. And Honestly, it was just like those were it's kind of like a microcosm of my athletic and like academic life. And those are my close friends and they're still my close friends. Um, but the other thing was, especially for running, it's a little bit different than basketball or another team sport in the case that um, you can 
basically you can run as long as you're there for the workouts. My coach was like, okay, if you have a late lab that you need to go to, or if you have to run earlier on a Wednesday when you have rehearsal or something like that, as long as you get the miles in, um, that's okay. And he was willing to work with me. And the same thing with my engineering professors. Like if I had to miss class for, um, if I had to miss class for a meet or like a kind of show up late a little bit because practice ran late, they would kind of be understanding. Obviously I didn't want to, you know, uh, abuse that privilege, but, um, they were pretty willing to, uh, they were pretty willing to work with me. And that was the other benefit of Bucknell. I mean, I think we graduated like 35 mechanical engineers. So the teachers knew all of us and we were kind of small and we were super close, like all of our classes and everything like that. So it definitely kind of, it was more like a family than like a school. So everybody was really willing to work with all of us. So that definitely helped. And it sounds like your time commitments almost mirrored what you're going through now in terms of (laughs) you kind of had, had no free moments. Um, so how were you able to, I guess, um, amplify recovery or rest periods or things like that to kind of maximize your running while also still getting the other pieces in? Is that something that you um, were pretty active about, you and you know, working with your coaches and athletic trainers during that time? Um, well, I guess I would say that I wasn't very good about it. Um, I would say there was definitely multiple semesters where I like averaged four hours of sleep or less a night. So I wasn't really getting the sleep I needed. Um, and then I probably wasn't getting all the, um, the, like the right nutrition and everything like that, because I had like the unlimited meal plan or whatever. So if I was on my way places and I was hungry, I would just swipe into the calf and grab some cookies on my way just to kind of as a pick me up. Um, and I really only went to the trainers when something was really bad, like my calves are really tight or my hamstrings are freaking out or something like that, because I couldn't make it a regular occurrence. But um, when we did have kind of down nights or like a night before me, my friends and one of my roommates and I would be like, okay, well, my calves are really bad and your calves are really bad. We'll, we'll alternate using the running stick and like make sure that we get all of them out because we're whims and we can't do them ourselves. So um, <laughs> it was one of those things where it was kind of on the list, but it didn't make it to the top of the priority list until um, like until something was really bad. And then I kind of dealt with it then. I would say the probably the word to describe my college career was kind of triage. It was, okay, what's on fire now? Um, what do I need to do to fix it? And we'll handle this one because it's burning the brightest. And then we'll work on the next one. <laughs> wow. So what was the, what was your, the, the, what was the event or race or season that you most loved uh, from a running perspective? So uh, my heart totally lies with the 10 K. Um, so I would say probably my favorite season was outdoor track my sophomore year. Um, there were four of us who were super close. We called ourselves Team 10K, um, and we did everything together. We would do all of our runs together. We did all of our workouts. We totally annoyed the crap out of my, our coach, who was the assistant coach in charge of cho- coaching us, because he would try to get a word in edgewise and be like, nope, it's just the four of us on a run. You may be here, but we're just talking. And then we would continue whatever conversations we were having at practice into the wee hours of the night when we were all up doing homework. Um, but it was honestly, we just had this like awesome team mentality. The four of us, we did everything. We were encouraging each other's on runs. We were encouraging each other on in races. And we tried to make sure that everybody felt like they were part of it. And we were all just working towards a common goal and everything. And it was just kind of this awesome experience with all four of us kind of just kind of out there and just grinding. It's just like, it was just kind of the perfect, perfect set of teams. And we got that a lot on cross country, but I think it was magnified because there was just the four of us and everything. But honestly, it was just, I, I would have to say that's probably one of the highlights of my, my college career. And it's situation too, right? 
we're running is for so many people uh, an individualistic sport. If for no other reason than you want to run your certain paces, and it's hard to find someone whose paces you know, closely align with what you're going through uh, perspective that you kind of have that, that cohesion and that community. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'm assuming that there's no way you had that in high school, just, you know, the fact that you were a college runner, um, you were probably uh, pretty far out from some of your high Actually, school Actually, um, my high school, for some reason, had produced a ton of um, ton of distance runners that all went in college. <laughs> hey, now, sorry about that. Look at you, you guys, you're like, that, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, so um, actually, in my, I think my junior year cross-country team, um, we had a girl go to Princeton, a girl go to Cornell, a girl go to Clemson, a girl go to Wake Forest. Um, the other girl in my grade went to University of Washington, Seattle. So um, I like to tell people that honestly, like I was, I went to one of the worst running schools of anybody on my high school team. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, and that's not a snub at Bucknell. That's very good. It just, I just, it was one of those things. I think if I had a, a dollar for every single high school banquet I went to, that's Oh, if Becky was on any other team, she would be the top runner. <laughs> I think I probably could have paid for college. Um, but it wasn't, honestly, that wasn't a detriment. It showed me what was possible. It gave me something to strive for. It showed me that there were other people out there killing it. And it didn't let me get complacent. It was like, okay, well, I always want to work because if I'm on a relay with these people, um, I want to be able to help them. And I don't want to be like, I don't want to be the weak link. And I always want to get out there and work. And it was the same thing as all of us were working towards these relays at counties and working towards state titles and everything. And it was just it was the kind of the more the same thing. It was just, a, there was a bunch of us and we were committed and we were all there. And it kind of, that was probably what fostered my love of running. It was just like the, all of us just kind of working towards a common goal. And that's fundamentally kind of the team aspect that everybody hopes for. Yeah. That's interesting. Especially say going back to freshman, sophomore year of high school, where there, where the difference in ages can be, um, excuse me, can be, you know, a significant, hurdle for say like a 14 year old trying to race an 18 year old and trying to stay competitive and not get bogged down or get negative if you can't keep up with someone who's uh significantly older and maybe doing uh, a little bit better of a job especially if they're you know about to attend you know a power mm -hmm. division one conference um conference school to to do running yeah as well. i actually totally lucked out there was a girl when i came in a freshman year she was a senior her name was steph and she kind of took me under her wing and we did a bunch of runs together and everything. And she's always kind of molded. Uh, she kind of molded how I wanted to be um, when, especially with the younger kids, making sure that they always felt like they had a place and were welcome and everything like that. And make it like, yeah, we were trying to be competitive, but at the same time, we were all just out there kind of trying to have fun. And so I definitely, I totally lucked out. Um, my high school coach, I'm still in contact with him. We still talk all the time. Um, he actually also ran Boston. So we were talking about that. Um, but yeah, no, I, honestly, I think my high school team did a ton, um, as frustrating as it was to, you know, be trying to run these great times and look at other places and see like, oh man, like I could have been going to all these meets because we had caps on there. It, like I said earlier, it was something that showed me what was possible and it showed me that, you know, it like I, as long as I work as hard as I can, like that's, and get the most out of myself on the day, like I really need to just like, that's all I can give. And that's one of the beautiful things about running. It's so black and white is that, you know, it like you you can race against yourself and you know it doesn't really matter but as long as you know you've given the most out of yourself that's really i mean there's nothing subjective about it <laughs> now what high school did you attend what was that sorry what high school did uh, you attend? randolph high school in new jersey oh okay got it yeah um 
That makes sense. Yeah, there's. Uh, I've actually been to Randolph High School in New Jersey <laughs> in my old, my old college admissions days. Oh, um, going to going to the, uh, the the college fairs there. Um, so when you left Bucknell, and you know, you're you're looking at jobs and you you lock it down, and you're thinking about going to grad school or not. Where did running fit in into your plans at that point? Um, I would say running into my plans was, it was something I was always going to do for me and just kind of figure that out. Um, and it was, I think I was sort of thinking if I was, I was kicking around either going to full-time grad school or going to get a, a full-time job and trying to figure out what's going on. And if I was going to go to grad school, maybe uh, email some coaches and find out if they needed a graduate assistant or something like that. But um the company I actually ended up with, uh, we're pretty massive. Um, so we have our own running club that's part of it. And I forgot that I told my mom this, or I wouldn't have found out about it to the day of my interview. But my mom was like, you came home for that interview and you were just like, oh my God, mom, they have a running club. This is perfect. <laughs> and I was just like, um, so I think I always knew that it was going to be a part of my life. Um, but the other beautiful thing about running is you really, uh, you don't need a team to do it. As long as you have, you know, a pair of sneakers in the road, you're totally fine. So um, I think I always do is going to be part of my life, even though I like to believe that it wasn't the driving factor of, you know, where I made my decisions. So when did you decide to bump up your training and start becoming a marathon? Um, I know that's, it's always a hard, hard thing to try to figure out, you know, what races to do, what, you know, what training to, to be involved in, especially for someone who is so, uh, you know, so good at the 10k and that was like your main your your main race earlier on to really step up the training and do the the longer distance especially considering you have all these other pulls on your time um so i guess i always kind of knew i was going to end up at the marathon i didn't necessarily expect to run a marathon uh within a year of graduating from college but um a couple of the friends that i was running with are like hey we're actually running the providence marathon like let's like we're going to go. And I'm just like, you know what? That kind of sounds kind of fun. I'll do that. <laughs> it was sort of just kind of on a whim. We were talking about it Tuesday track practice. And I was just like, you know what? That sounds good. I'll do that. That sounds like fun. <laughs> um, and so it was just sort of one of those things. And uh, one of my really close friends at the time, he, uh, he had run a couple marathons and he was actually training for Boston that year. And so he was kind of help guiding my training and help kind of, cause he had done, gone through the process of running obviously to qualify for for Boston. So he was kind of helping me out there, but it was one of those, I would say I, I decided to do it on a whim. It was sort of just like, you know what, this can't be that hard. It's just going to be upping the mile. I love my long run and I've always liked the long run. So this, this will be fine. <laughs> and then you ran it. What was the, what, what was the actual execution like compared to what you thought it was? Um, so it was a little bit difficult. Um, so I, went out a little bit too fast. And if Caitlin ever listens to this, she's going to laugh at this because she, I do that a lot. Um, but um, I went out a little fast and then I was doing okay until about halfway. Um, and then I was kind of working on taking in enough goose and stuff like that, but I never actually mastered um, the Dixie cups. <laughs> so I think I got more Gatorade and water on my bib than I did in my mouth. So uh, that was kind of fun. And that kind of came back to bite me in the butt in the back half. Um, and then I don't know if you've ever run the Providence Marathon, but you run along the river and through the neighborhoods and that kind of stuff for about the first half. And then the back half, you're really just on the bike path, which is like phenomenal thing. I run on it with um, one of my friends who lives in Providence. But 
Um, and at mile like 18, when there's no spectators and you're basically been chasing the same dude for the last like four miles, it's really the last place you want to be. So um, it was also really flat and that kind of bit me a little bit as well. It was just sort of my legs weren't used to running flat for that long. So the hill coming off of the bike path uh, over there by um, India Point Park felt like a godsend. I was just like, oh, my God, this is perfect. Um, but uh, that is literally the exact opposite of think of every other person who's run <laughs> that race is that that hill is a monster. I mean, for most people who don't run hills very often, it can feel like a monster. It's not overly long, but it is pretty steep. Um, and then you're, it's so funny that you like that you, that you were looking forward to the hill, but then dreading the flats. Um, I definitely know the bike path. Well, I actually grew up, you know, within 50 feet mm-hmm. of that bike path, um, on the East Bay of Rhode Island. So I know, I do know it very well. I actually ran a half marathon on that exact same course last year. Um, so that's so, that's, that's pretty funny that, that you were dreading the flats and were excited for the hill. Um, it was, I was just saying to then, use different muscles. My hamstrings are getting tired. My glutes are getting tired. And I was just like, I need to use my quads. Like I need to change something up here. Everything hurts. I needed to stop. <laughs> so, so what was it like coming down the, the last, the last few miles? What was your self-talk like to trying to fight through that, that discomfort? And I'm assuming that the pain, was a little different than some of the pain you felt in some of your shorter races. Yeah. So the, actually the last race I had run before Providence had actually been a 10 K a couple of weeks before, um, that I actually went back to Bucknell to run at their big home invite. Um, and I remember talking to myself, um, at my whole five of that 10 K when I was starting to get hard there. And I was just like, you know what, the next time you hit five miles into a race, you're still going to have 21 miles to go. So you need to just suck it up and just keep running. Like you're almost done here. Um, and so I think finally, uh, when I got to, you got off the cobblestones, which I honestly thought was like running over a mountain, like whoever decided to run, put cobblestones at mile 24 in a marathon probably should have their head examined because that's just ridiculous. <laughs> um, but, uh, <laughs> no, um, coming down that finish line, I was just like, it was part of like disbelief. I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing this. Like, here we go. Like, this is real. Like, this is something I've definitely thought about forever. This is kind of one of those things that I, you know, like have been hoping to do and had definitely had on my bucket list. And here we are, I'm finishing it and coming down towards the finish line. I was just like, oh my God, this is so much fun. This is so cool. I was in a ton of pain. I was super excited to stop and then immediately sit down. But it was one of those things I was just like, you know, this is awesome. This is honestly, it doesn't matter whatever happens. Like this is something that like, it was just kind of a cool experience. And to, to kind of take that next step, from that first marathon what, what was your time do you remember i sorry yeah you cut out for that question what, what was the what was your time for that marathon sorry you cut out again i think it really doesn't want you to ask this oh, question <laughs> no kidding right what, what what time did you have for uh, that i marathon? ran a 255 in training for that marathon okay all right so after you had time to reflect on that race what, how did that experience change your goals for your running future? I think I had always had uh, Olympic trials in the back, back of my head. I was just like, you know, like it's going to be hard and I'm going to have to work my ass to do ass off to do this. But, you know, I, this is something I think I can do. This is something that seems attainable to me. Um, so it just kind of gave me like kind of a kick in the pants. Like, Hey, like I did this off of like something like that wasn't like serious training, like definitely not 10, like not definitely not like marathon specific training. Like, I, there's something here like I can definitely like, capitalize on this and it kind of like sparked a fire in me to be able to do that um so it was 
I think taking that time to reflect and everything like that. But um, I had actually, I actually tried to come back a little bit too early because I'm part of the local track team around here. And uh, we had a couple of we wanted to compete in. So I tried to come back really fast and I gave myself some IT band issues that it went away. I just had, it was one of those things where you have a marathon and I was excited to do it again, but it also kind of teaches you like you really have to respect the distance and everything like that. And you have to be prepared for it and you really have to make it a priority if you're going to make it like you're going to make the sacrifice to do it. So um, it was just kind of equal parts like humbling, but also just kind of like exciting and sort of just like, Hey, like this is the goal. And this is kind of the big scary goal that, um, like you don't tell a lot of people until you're confident. Like I'm a lot more, a lot more confident on telling people like, Hey, like Olympic trials, like that's something I'm shooting for now than I was back then. But it was always kind of those things like, Hey, like maybe this is a possibility. And like, it's like, gets louder every time that I, I kind of complete a marathon and everything like that. Yeah. I mean, it certainly is well within, um, kind of well within your grasp at this point, given considering your, your recent successes, but even going back to f- you know, a few years ago, while you may not have been expressing that goal externally, what made you believe that it was possible internally? I mean, you grew up in a, in a running town that had a bunch of elite runners um, in it. And then you, you ran division one college, and then you saw a bunch of, you know, high level runners there too. What, what gave you the confidence and the drives to say, I can be one of the best runners in the country if I dedicate myself to this? I think, honestly, it was one of those things that was instilled. It was, you know, as long as you do the work, like running is one of those things you get out of it, exactly what you put into it. You know, it's if I can put in the work and I can put in the years of consistent training, even if it doesn't happen in the next five years, maybe it'll happen in the next 10 years, maybe the next 15. Like you can still just keep going there and you're grinding it away and kind of chip away at it a little by little. And it was just, I don't know. I maybe I'm a little bit too cocky of myself, but it was one of those things like it was just like, I always kind of knew that it was back there in the back of my head. And I was just like, you know what? Like, I think this is possible. Like, let me just see how, like, let's just see what happens. Like, you know what? Let's go for it. Let's dream big. And I guess I forget who said it, but you know, if your dreams don't scare you, they're not big enough. Right. So, (laughs) um, I've heard that quote as well. I'm trying, I'm racking my brain as you were saying that to think of who said it. Uh, but it, uh, it definitely is a, is a good line. Um, that's for sure. And, and you, you kind of, you lived up to it. I mean, you, you kept lowering your times um, over the next couple of years and then getting ready for this Boston marathon. How did your training cycle work out? Did, did it work out the way you'd hoped? Um, yeah, I think it was probably as good as it probably could have been. Um, honestly, it was just, there was a lot of just kind of getting it done, like fitting it in when you can. Um, the the gra- class I took this semester was pretty difficult. So there was a lot of like, all right, come home from work, immediately put on your running clothes, go out and then come back down and scarf some dinner down, like usually scrambled eggs if I needed something quick. And then just sit down at my desk and do homework for a couple hours. And I think it was one of those things where it kind of running allowed me to take the time I needed for the day to just sort of sit down and compartmentalize. But at the same time, like, I would kind of come back, re-energized, be like, okay, like, I grind through that workout, like, no matter how hard it was, like, I was able to sit down and grind through it, and um, honestly, like, I think it went as well as it could have given just everything that externally was happening, the snow and the rain and the 40 degrees and windy for, like, months, it felt like, (laughs) Um, so yeah, it was, I think the training cycle itself went well, but I think it was one of those things where it provided me the confidence I needed, because, even like it was able to go well and I was able to hit the mileage and hit the paces and everything like that on top of everything else that was happening external to the training cycle. 
And your coach gave me a little insight before this podcast. And she said you were just so dedicated so dedicated to making sure you got workouts in despite all, despite the time constraints that you had. So when you had those days where you just don't want to head out, like you said before that you, you viewed running as this is the one thing I get to do for myself. And that's awesome. But you might not always feel that way, right? Especially if it's 30 degrees outside and super windy. So when you have those days where you're just dreading it, what are your kind of your go-to moves internally to to get your feet out so the door? So I'm a big fan of running with music. I think it's probably come back to the fact that I just grew up with it. So I think one of my bigger things was if I had it's one of those days that I really, really didn't want to get out the door. Um, there's this crazy Spotify playlist called Songs That Get Drunk White Girls Excited. And I'm kind of embarrassed to say that I have it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I listen to that a lot on the really nasty days, um, especially if I'm doing workouts by myself. Um, and it's got a little bit of everything. I'd recommend people to it. It's not really safe for work. I wouldn't play it over your speakers, especially if you're like not college kids in your car. Um, uh, but it's got a little bit of everything. And like, it's just one of those things. It's just like, it kind of puts you in a good mood, but at the same time, it's just like so ridiculous that it's just, it's just whatever. Um, but, and the other thing was be like, I called upon like some of my friends in college. I'd be like, Hey, I need motivation to get out the door. Like I've got such and such. I have a 14 mile run that I really don't want to go. They'd be like, Oh, I'm heading out for mine as well. So it'll be like, we're running together back in college again. And it was one of those things where you just kind of saw the motivation. And at the end of the day, like, honestly, I was going to feel better regardless after I came back from my run. And I would have felt so bad if I hadn't gone to do it. And um, I guess, I don't know. I think probably these are all the signs of an addiction, (laughs) but uh, I think there's worse things to be addicted to. There you go. But you, you said, you said it right. And I've used that line as well is that I've never felt worse after a run. Yeah. You know I mean? I like there, there've been plenty of runs where when I finished that moment of finishing, especially if it's a track workout where, you know, you're, you're on your hands and knees and sometimes, sometimes just on your back looking at the sky and going, Oh my God, what just happened? But ultimately you do feel better after the fact. Um, mm-hmm. So when you entered peak week and then entering your taper, did you have a specific time goal that you had narr- you and Caitlin had narrowed down for Boston? This was pretty kind of before weather forecast. So just assuming that everything was going to work out fine with the weather, what times do you think were within the realm of possibility? So for I you? think I kind of started the training cycle having come off of a not necessarily disappointing, but uh, a marathon the year before where I hadn't run the time that I really was capable of because I decided to race it more than just kind of sit there and time trial it. Um, so I think when I came into the cycle, I was just like, all right, I absolutely need 250 or under. Like, that's that's what I'm shooting for. I was kind of starting the training cycle doing that. Um, and then I was starting to hit paces, like, closer to times that would suggest, like, 245 or whatever. But it was one of those things where everybody tells me, oh, boss, I'm super hot. So I was trying to wear more clothes than pot- than I needed to get down, like, when I was doing the running and trying to get on the treadmill, do a couple of my doubles or, like, easy runs on the treadmill to get used to running in the heat and everything like that. And then... I think even just like a week out from Boston, Caitlin and I were on the phone and uh, she was like, well, like, it looks like weather is supposed to be pretty decent, like pretty comfortable, like maybe 50s, like high 40s. Um, looks like we're going to be OK. So I think this is actually perfect. Like you're not going to have a shock to your system either way. Um, and we were saying like, you know what, like your A goal should be pretty comfortably like 245. Like you have it. You've been nailing your workouts. You've been nailing long runs. You've been doing all of this kind of stuff. Um, let's do uh 
B goal would be sub two fifty, and then I forget what the C goal was, but those are the two big ones. And it was just like, okay, like it took me a little while to kind of talk myself into that headspace. I was just like, you know what, like that's such a like such a departure. Like, am I really like an Olympic trials qualifier caliber marathon right now? Like, can I do that? And I kind of was like thinking about it, and I was like, you know what, like I think I am. Like, I think I could do this. Everything like that. And then as the week went on, I was just like oh my God, it's going to be 25 mile an hour winds and 40 degrees and horizontally raining. And I was just like, you know what? This is fine. We're just going to deal with it. <laughs> right. Cause then you also have that, that, that issue that every marathoner has, or at least the vast majority of, it's not as if you can just go out and run another one the next month at the same clip, right? It's kind of like, all right, you're in it to win it. But if it goes wrong, it's like, all right, you're gonna have to wait a couple months and ramp right back up. So it's like, it's a blessing in that, you just have to embrace the experience. It's a negative in the sense of like, if you have these certain goals, like an Olympic trials qualifier, or if someone's trying to qualify for Boston for the first time, it can be a little bit of a downer. If you have, if you're looking at that forecast and saying, Oh my goodness, how yep. am I going to make this my happen? My teammate was making a lot of fun of me because he looked over probably no shorter than like five times a day. And I had like AccuWeather up on my computer. He's just like, okay, well, what's the weather forecast now? <laughs> Um, and then, uh, my boyfriend was really good about it. He had been around for the last marathon, but this one was the first one that he'd kind of been like, like really deep in the process with me. And he was just like, wait, so like, you don't get like a time correction. And I was just like, no, he's like, that kind of sucks. Like you only have one day to do this. And he was getting on, like checking the weather and everything like that and being supportive. But yeah, it's, it's definitely a thing where you're just like, okay, well, it doesn't matter really what the weather is, but you got to be ready for anything and just kind of run with it and just roll with it and do what you can right there you go so all right so you're so we started this podcast talking about you're at the starting line what are you thinking so let's just dial it back right to that moment again so you're at the starting line you are despite finishing 14th um the foot of the 14th fastest time for women in the boston marathon you weren't with the elites mm -hmm. at this point you're with the main crowd run um so you mentioned before you have a penchant for starting quickly. So how did you start this? Um, Caitlin had drilled it into my head and I had done really good job kind of getting myself in the headspace. Like, okay, like I basically have just a really long tempo run for 20 miles and then I have 10 K to just race. So I actually started slow. I think I hit like a, like my goal for the race ended up being, all right, given all the weather and everything, let's hit six thirties until either like, uh, everything breaks loose and you're basically running in tornado um, or you hit heartbreak and then just let it go. Just like use everything you have. It's all downhill from there and go from there. So I was like, all right, six thirties, here we go. Six thirty, six thirty. <laughs> I hit the first mile. I've been kind of in traffic. I've been trying to stay loose. Um, Cause I didn't really get a warm up, and it was so cold that if I, whatever running I had done before I got into the corral, I'd, my muscles were super tight. So I'd kind of taken a little bit easy um, I probably overcompensated for not going out too fast. So I actually ran a 645, but in just like kind of like a weird, I was just like super calm given everything that was happening around me. I was just like, you know what? This is fine. Like 645 is totally fine. Just kind of dial it in, find your pace, everything like that. And the next mile I was 627. And I was just like, I just need four more of these. And I've averaged 630 for the, for the first six and everything like that. So <laughs> see your engineering math background playing its part right there you got the math all set you don't need a calculator you're figuring it was early fly. enough in that, that I, I could trust my track math too um, <laughs> um but yeah no it was just sort of one of those things it was just like all right like i'm here i'm doing it 6 30 6 30 and i was kind of clicking them off and i found the rhythm and 
kind of was rolling with the rolling hills that you see like early on in the first half of Boston and everything like that. And I had friends along the course. My mom was mastering the uh, commuter rail. So I knew where to look for her and I knew to, where to look for some of my friends. And I was really honestly just getting there. And I was just like, you're out there to run, but at the same time you're out there because it's Boston. You know what I mean? Like this is one of the most famous marathons in the world. Like everybody knows Boston and there's so many stories. There's the girls at Wellesley. There's, you know, like Framingham, there's everything. And there's so many signs. And I, I mean, like, I don't even know, like, ha- like, I don't think I wanted to be out there. And I was actually physically moving, but there's spectators along every single part of this course. And it was just like, you're in here, and you're just kind of soaking it up. So it's kind of easy to kind of take away from doing what you were doing. And you're just like, this is amazing. This is I've never run a marathon like this. I probably never will run a marathon like this again. And it was just it was one of those things where you're just like calm and collected because like you don't need to supply the energy because Boston supplies the energy for you and everything like that. And it was just, honestly, it was just like one of like the most joyful marathons I think I've run. It was just, honestly, it was just perfect. (laughs) So how long were you able to stay externally focused before, as with happens with every marathon or all of a sudden the warning lights start popping up internally, like either this is bothering you or this, you have a hot spot here or you're a little tight there. When, when did that start to pop? Uh, up? I had a couple of things like stuff that had been nagging me. Like my Achilles had been kind of would flare up every once in a while during training or my hip or hamstring or something along those lines. But it was like a very strange thing for me. Like usually like I'll panic and then kind of like have to like pull myself like mentally like wrangle myself and just kind of go back to thinking positive and but it was one of those things it was just like similar like the first mile seeing it was 645 and just not panicking about it and not overcompensating early on it was just okay well let's sort of alter where I'm hitting with my foot or sort of try to get back towards like the flat run towards the middle of the road because that'll like stop freaking out your Achilles or do that kind of stuff and let's focus on other things for a little bit and just like kind of ride the wave and it was honestly it was just kind of like check in but then also just like okay these are uncomfortable you're running a marathon it's supposed to be uncomfortable let's just like lean in and just kind of embrace it this is going to happen you're going to ride the wave it'll be gone in about half a mile and it was like sort of like especially with how cold it was it was like all right check in like let's see okay can I feel my hands can I feel my feet um am I starting to get hypothermic no are we okay okay kind of just like every periodically like every mile maybe every two miles it was just like all right hands are good feet are good head is good like all right let's check in like do like full system check and then all right let's just keep running and everything like that it was honestly it was just kind of a weird experience it was almost like out of body it didn't feel like any of the other marathons I've run where I've been just so totally destroyed by like mile 21 and I'm just like how am I going to finish this thing it was just like I hit the top of heartbreak and I was just like you know this is okay like let's drop the hammer let's go and let's go catch people and that kind of stuff and it was just I don't know I don't know I don't know how to explain it really (laughs) it sounds like you were very meta like you had a lot of metacognition during this race, it's almost like you were looking down upon how your body was feeling as opposed to actually feeling it and kind of like reacting yeah. to it. It was like I was sitting there and it was like I was dealing with a problem at work. Like there was no panic. There was everything. It was just, okay, like this is what's happening. This is what, this is the information that I'm getting. These are what the signals my body is sending me. Okay. How worried do I need to be about these? No, I don't have to be worried. Okay. Like let's just, these, these are muscles getting tired. These are muscles getting a little bit angry, but these are not muscles that are threatening to tear or anything like that. This is just like, okay, this is what I expect at 21, 22 miles of a marathon. We can keep going. They'll be fine. All right. So I'm excited. You get to the top of heartbreak hill. Like you said, you're going to, now you're going to drop the hammer. So what did that mean for you in that moment? Like how, how much do you ramp it up and how much do you save for, you know, cause at that point you still have what 
seven and a half? Six. Seven miles left? left. About six yeah. miles left? Okay. So, so you have six miles left. So for you at that moment, what does dropping the <laughs> hammer mean? And what did that mean from a time perspective? So I had been hitting pretty solidly 630s, somewhere between 625, 630s. Um, Caitlin and I had read, or uh, Caitlin had sent me a bunch of stuff where, you know, it, like if you have these marathons, robots, and you want to run it really, really well, you have to have take your goal pace and you can't vary the miles plus or minus like more than five seconds you have to basically be within five seconds of your goal pace uh plus or minus the entire race so i've been kind of been doing a good job about it and um it was like i got to the top of heartbreak um and i had a friend uh from down here in connecticut who was actually working mile 21 and i was like all right get to angie let's see like let's see if we can find her give her a high five grab some water from her or whatever and then you know let's just go race like you're like you just run a 20 mile tempo run, but you've done a lot of work after these long tempo runs where you've got used to changing the gears towards the end of them. Like you've done the long runs where you've got the hot miles and everything. So you're used to running fast, tired. So let's just, let's just put it into work and it's going to hurt. You're going to expect it to hurt. And then, but at the same time, like most of the last 10 K of Boston is pretty much downhill. Um, but you're also getting back into where there's a ton of crowd support. Cause you're in Boston prop, you're running by Boston college, you're running by BU and everything like that. And so, um, I think I went from running about 6.30s, and I think the back half, like the back 10K, I think um, I was closer between closer to 6.15, I, I think. And I think some of the more aggressive downhill miles, I was closer to 6 flat, which I was pretty impressed by. Um, but uh, it was just one of those things where, you know, like just go and just see what happens. I don't think I even looked at my watch in the last 10K of it. I was just kind of rolling with it. I was like, all right, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> And what was it like from a competition standpoint? What was it, the people around you? Were you passing people? Were you staying with the same group? How thickly settled was the crowd? And what um, was the pack of runners? Yeah. So the people that I was running with, um, I'd been kind of moving between groups. Um, and so, uh, yeah, no, it was moving between groups. There was always people. Um, at that point in time, starting around the, like the last 10K, I noticed that there's this one guy who was always next to me. And I, every single time I tried to speed up, he was right there. So we were kind of racing each other. I don't know if he was racing me, but I was racing him. Um, uh, so he and I were kind of going back and forth for most of the race. Um, but yeah, no, there were a bunch of people. There was more people than I really expected. I don't think uh, there was as many people as there normally are, like five people deep at, at Boston, but there were definitely people that were out there and more than just like pockets and spotty, but they were out there, they were cheering. They, you know how they do at big marathons where they find something on you, like either whatever brand of running you're wearing, or if you have your name on your bib or something like that, or if you have a team name on and they'll find something and they'll try to single you out and say, Hey, like, look, I see you. You're, I see you out there. You're struggling. Like, Hey, let me sh share some of my energy with you and everything like that. And so there was always people looking out there and saying like, Hey, go, go girl, go do this. Go awesome. So it was there was enough crowd support out there that it didn't feel like you were running through like an absolutely deserted Boston. Oh, that's great. And then at, at what point, if at all, did you become aware of where you might be falling uh, compared to the other women in the race? Did, did that come up at all during the race for you? Or was that something that, that came up after that came up afterwards? So when I finished, um, I had, uh, I had been kind of tracking like how far off the like, the gun time. So off the clock, I knew I had about like two minutes off the gun time or whatever. So um, I made sure not to stop my watch as I crossed the finish line. Cause everybody gets mad when you do that. Um, 
And so I, I was just kind of excited after I stopped running, well, A to be done running. Um, and then second of all, I was just like, oh my God, I just ran this massive PR. I broke 250. Like this, like I got my A goal for the day, given the weather and everything like that. Um, and then I turned to a volunteer and I was like, oh my God, like who won the women's race? Who won? And the first volunteer told me, she's like, I think it was the blonde one. And I was like, oh my God, that's Shalane. And then somebody else told me it was Desi. Um, and I was just like, oh my God, an America had one boss. And I was so excited. And then I had to tell myself, you can't start crying because you're going to end up in the med tent. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, but I was just so excited. And then I started getting really cold. Um, and and then it was just sort of like the mad dash, all right, I got to find my mom. I got to find like those kind of people because they've got my dry clothes and I don't have a phone. So I was trying to find volunteers who had phones and nobody had a phone. Um, so I asked like a bunch of different people. Um, and then it wasn't until I found my mom and she was just like, all of your dad's sisters are texting me and saying, oh my God, Becky is 14th. Becky's 14th. And she came in and I think she's 14th. I was like, no, there's no way I'm 14th. There's no way I came in 14th at Boston. Like I ran a 249, like 249 doesn't get you 14th at Boston. And she was just like, Becky, like literally everybody's telling me this. Like all of your aunts are telling me they sent me a screenshot of like the leaderboard. Like you're 14th. I was just like, oh my goodness, this is this isn't real. This can't be happening. Like what? <laughs> Um, so yeah, it probably took me about an hour after I finished to even hear the news that I was, I was there. That, that must just have been such a surreal experience for you. Did you actually, did you have a chance to actually see the leaderboard with your name on it? Or was that one of the things like it was prompted on like a TV screen? Uh, you're cutting out again. Sorry. Sorry about that. All right. So did did you end up seeing a leaderboard or was that, or was the leaderboard that your family was mentioning? Was that something they saw on the TV? Um, I think they were watching online. So they sent me whatever BAA had um, uh, online. They had like the online leaderboard where they could track the runners. Um, so I, yeah, there wasn't anything posted at the finish line. It was more, um, I only saw it uh, digitally online. Got it. So the mean, First of all, congratulations. I mean, that it really is remarkable. You got your A goal considering all like the crazy, the craziness about that race or, or pretty close to your A goal, I should say, uh, all the crazy weather and conditions and all of that. And then little did you know, you know, it's almost like uh, some metaphor popped up after the race because there was quite the controversy that was kind of blown up after a BuzzFeed article that went out and maybe some others as well. Uh, but I think the BuzzFeed article was really took hold of a lot of people, especially people who didn't or weren't well-grounded in why um, certain races are are programmed the way they are in that for you as someone who finished 14th overall, from a time perspective, you weren't given any, um, at least, at least least initially did not get any prize money for that race because you weren't part of the elite women's starting field. Yeah. And you had, I thought, a very good blog post about this. And we'll, I'll have a link to it in the show notes for this. So would you mind just, in your own words, giving a synopsis of what this kind of faux controversy was and how, and how basically you, you know, in retrospect, you know, looked on it and then and how the whole thing was, was resolved? Yeah. So um, I guess the biggest thing here was, I guess uh, we were kind of in this weird situation where we had a bunch of the elites drop out because the weather was just nuts and everything like that. Um, So it was a sort of thing where that there were three of us who were part of this. Um, I came in 14th. There was a girl who came in 13th and then another girl who came in fifth. Um, And uh, the girl who came in fifth 
is stood to lose fifteen thousand dollars and i don't know about you but that's like that could make like it's like almost life-changing amount of money (laughs) um (laughs) so like that's that's a lot um that's basically a new car um but uh yeah so we were kind of just talking about it and I had emailed the BAA just kind of like playing dumb a little bit, just like, Hey, like I came in 14th. Like I see you give prize prize money to the first 15 people. Like, what do you need for me? Like, did I miss something at the thing that I need to go back and do? And they emailed me back and were like, Oh no, like elite women start, like you weren't part of it. Um, and then also like, if we did this, we would go something off of your, your gun time rather than your chip time, something like, Oh my God. And I was like, okay, fine. Like that's understandable. Like, all right, whatever. Um, they said, no, that's fine. I was going to probably just leave it alone. Um, and then about a week later, um, the girl who came in for just Chichester reached out and said, Hey, like my friend is helping us out here and he wants to put together an article about buzz for Buzzfeed. Uh, would you like to get interviewed? And I was like, yeah, sure. Like, absolutely. That, that works. Um, you know, whatever, like this is kind of cool. Um, how many times am I going to get asked to be interviewed by Buzzfeed? Uh, so I was like, sure, whatever. So he called me up, we were talking, kind of got into the mindset of what was going on. And then, um, he so we were on the phone like we're all talking through BuzzFeed and we're we're going on this question and everything like that and it goes like I mean obviously like it's going they're trying to we're trying to kind of get money out of this and I kind of like raise kind of bring this to the court of public opinion um and everything uh just to try to um just kind of get it out there to see kind of one of those things where it was like see what happens go from there um and then uh we go from there and then the BuzzFeed article comes out and it's got this like super inflammatory title. It's already like, uh, this girl came in fifth. If she was a guy, she would have won $15,000. And I was just like, Oh boy. Um, and then, but I thought like the rel, what like my thoughts for that I had given, I wasn't super chopped up and kind of run- written to fit an agenda and sort of just kind of like enrage everybody to figure out like, Oh my gosh, the BA is sexist because I didn't want to go there. I didn't believe that this was a thing. Like fundamentally, like I thought the BAA did an absolutely wonderful job with everything they had. There were so many places. Like, I think I said this in my blog. There were so many places where this marathon could have fallen apart. You know, like there were volunteers everywhere. They had water stations were expertly manned. Everybody, there was a ton of people in the starting corrals just standing there in the winter and I, in the this weather. And I was just like, oh my God, I can't believe you're doing this. You're not even running. You're just standing out here watching a bunch of people like stripped down into shorts and t-shirts and you could be at home drinking hot chocolate. Um, and then even once you finished, you had all the medical volunteers and they were doing a phenomenal job, like finding runners who were too delirious to be able to like kind of make smart decisions or like, hey, we need to get you inside because you are actually actively shaking and we need to put, get you warm because this isn't safe. This isn't healthy. Um, so I didn't want to say anything bad about the BAA because fundamentally I think they did a phenomenal job. I, I had nothing, no issues with them at all. Like, yeah, it would have been nice to get paid, but not at the expense of making them look like a terrible org- organization. And I don't think any of us sitting there were really trying to get that point across. It was just one of those things where once you put that out there, the court of public exp- opinion, especially given everything that's happening in the political climate today, like it's going to go wild. Like you can't put something out there and kind of expect yourself to be able to keep your own narrative once it's out there. Um, so as it kind of spun wildly out of control, it kind of got just like too big for me. And I was just like, you know what? I, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Like I need to be able to take control of this narrative and I want to put it out there. And it was one of those things where like I was starting to like kind of, feel not necessarily dirty is the wrong word but it was one of those things where I was way I was punching way above my weight class and I was just like I I can't do this like I can't be part of this I don't want this to get any bigger 
I just, I kind of want to just go away. Like at this point in time, it's not worth the money that I would win to kind of have this get swirled into this like maelstrom of kind of like misused facts. So that's where my bus, that's where my uh, blog post came from. And I was just like, you know what? Um, I'm an engineer. I like to be able to fix things. Everything I feel like should have a solution. I've been basically, I went to school to be able to solve problems. Um, So I was like, you know what? if this is going to continue happening, I want to put some things like actionable items. And that's kind of where the impetus for my blog post was. And I was talking about it with Caitlin um, when I was trying to deal with this. Um, and she was just like, you know what? These are good points. You should put it out there. This is something that other people have also said, other professional runners like Lauren Fleshman talked about it. Mario Fraioli. Um, I'm sure I just butchered him, his name. Um, <laughs> he, he also talked about it in his, uh, his morning shakeout newsletter and everything like that. But no one's coming from the position where you're actually impacted by this at all. So you have a unique stance on this and this way you can actually do it yourself. And so that's kind of what the impetus to do it. And I was just like, you know what? I don't really like to kind of go out there. I don't really like the spotlight like that. So, but it was weird for me, but I also felt like I had this platform and I should use it. And if I wanted to, I needed to use it for something that was good and everything like that and kind of clear up the controversy and kind of put make it a little bit less kind of like flaming and everything um, and kind of be able to bring it back down and bring it to something that was more real and something I believe better. Well, anyone who's listening to this podcast will have already gathered the fact that you're a very thoughtful person. And I think if they go ahead and read that blog post, they'll be able to see that. Um, just, just another example uh, of that trait. And I thought you did a great job of you know, in a very short amount of time, just kind of giving a, a brief summary of what, what had happened and, as you put it, actionable items to fix it. And I thought you, you brought up a great on in that post of that the elite women start is inherently a good thing, that this is not a negative. This is a huge positive. And you laid out the reasons, and I'll, and I'll just you know, tell someone to just go look at that blog post. We don't need to recount all of them here. But I thought, I thought the great point for you was just talking about for Boston specifically, you know, what, what does it take to be in the elite women's star? Is it? And just the factors that go along with it, not trying to abolish it, just trying to make sure that it's as good as it could possibly yeah. be. And I think I even said in there, like, this is like one of a thousand times where this entire thing has kind of fallen apart like this, especially at something like Boston. So, Obviously, it's not something that has is a majorly flawed start, like based on any normal marathon that you could have expected to run. These rules are made and they're done well and everything like that. And this one time where literally anything that could have gone wrong during a marathon went wrong, they fell, fell apart. So maybe, hey, this is the impetus for the next one in a thousand time, maybe 3018 Boston, where it's like crazy weather, weather as well. Then you have these rules in place and we catch all the weird what, flyers and everything like that and or at the very least it's not necessarily like a smoke and mirrors process and it's very clear and not you don't really have any like there's nothing for the public to kind of grab a hole and then kind of you know take and march around and say hey they could have done this well we've thought about all of it because we've had the experience now there you go you say everything went wrong but not for you becky snelson everything went right for you you killed it you did a great job Thank you so much for coming on the show. As I already mentioned, and as everyone already knows, you are an incredibly busy person. So I appreciate your generosity with your time and doing an hour-long podcast with me. No problem. It was my pleasure. I had a great time. All right. Well, thank you for everything, and good luck with uh, 2018. Thank you. You too. 
Thank you, Becky, for coming on the show. And thank you, the listener, for listening. I really appreciate it. I really love the shares that I've been getting on Instagram and all the uh, the reviews on Apple Podcasts. I can't thank you enough for all of that. Um, and as I mentioned during this episode, please take a look at Becky's um, post-Boston Marathon uh, blog post. We touch on a lot of the topics, but she really expresses eloquently all the factors that kind of uh kind of weighed on her as she reflected on that experience uh which which by and large was a hugely positive one uh despite the controversy that that arose after the fact uh i have a link to that in the in the show notes so i suggest you give that give that a click give it a read uh and that you continue to follow becky on her running journey because as you may have gathered during this episode She's just at the beginning of what is sure to be a fantastic running career. So thanks again and happy running.